We see Jesus indeed. Increment 77 of a series called Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, and it comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And we might even reference it today. But we're going to Hebrews chapter 3 to start with, verse 7. And it begins with, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. It reminds me of, there was a preacher one time who was doing a series of revival messages. And night after night, he preached on, you must be born again. And one of the people in his congregation came to him after about the seventh night of doing that and said, why do you preach night after night? You must be born again. And the preacher said, because you must be born again. And that's kind of like what we're doing here. Why are we staying on one section of Scripture over and over again? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying today, if you hear his voice, why? Because today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As they did in a special incident in the desert wanderings of Israel following their exodus from Egypt. We're getting a lot out of this. A lot is emerging from it. So I hope you'll stay tuned and we'll open with prayer. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity to approach your throne of grace and to receive mercy and help from you in time of need. And though many of us would not recognize this as a time of need, we should because we need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to make us understand what we're about to receive. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we may apply those things and that we may be renewed in the Spirit in our minds. And we ask these things in Jesus' name for all who listen. Amen. Hebrews 3.7, so far our translation looks like this. Pared it down just a little bit. It's a working translation. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing God in the desert where your ancestors tested me, put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation and said, they're always led astray in heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, if they enter into my rest, which sometimes is translated, they will not Enter my rest. Last time we left off in the center of a debate in which we were debating between two viewpoints one of Rabbi Akiba, the other of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Akiba said and taught that this generation, this desert generation, would never have a part or a share in the world to come. That is, they would never enter into God's eschatological Sabbath rest, which still remains as we know from Hebrews 4.9, for the people of God. Eliezer said they would, and he used Psalm 50 in verse 5 as what I would consider to be a fairly weak defense. We've been giving a stronger one, and we've left off by giving examples in increment 76, and we now have one in Psalm 106, Psalm 78, Nehemiah 9, and Though the failures of God's covenant people in all of these iterations of Israel's history are certainly not hidden, but on blatant display, their history nevertheless continues beyond this incident we're studying now at Meribah and through the times of the judges and the kings. On two occasions, intercessors arose in their behalf, according to Psalm 106, their names being Moses, who is our subject in many ways in Hebrews, Moses and Phineas, both of whom are predictive types of Jesus, the greater prophet and priest, who, after experiencing death for everyone far from God and wearing a crown of thorns, 
is now crowned with glory and honor. And always lives, says the scripture. He's always living in the power of an incorruptible life to make intercession for us, to save us all the way to the uttermost. Now, I have in this message quite a few verses of documentation, but because I want it to flow today in a special kind of fluency, I won't be giving all the verses I have in this audible message today or this video message, but you will have them in print in their final form. So again, in Psalm 136, which is the Septuagint of 135, in verse 16, it says, He led his people in the desert, for his mercy endures forever. And in Psalm 136, 21 to 22, Septuagint 135, 21 to 22, the solidarity of Israel with Christ is suggested as the psalm composer speaks of God giving them their land as an inheritance for his mercy endures forever, it says. Moreover, this is the inheritance, the word kleronomia in the Hebrews letter, kleronomia, Hebrews 9.15 and 11.8 deals with the inheritance, which is related to the rest that we enter into. Moreover, then, this is the inheritance to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. That's a tagline at the end of each and every one of the 26 verses of Psalm 136. The tagline, for his mercy endures forever. The theme of God's ever-enduring, age-abiding mercy overrides all in this psalm. Now again, if you get the documentation, verses in parentheses that I'm giving for the documentation here, I recommend very highly that you look them up and the Holy Spirit will knit them together in a fabric of unity for you in this message because this is an urgent message, this is a timely message, but it's also a timeless message. The theme of God's ever-enduring, age-abiding mercy overrides everything else in this psalm. The words eis ton eona to elios autu is the way it is in the Greek. Eis ton eona to elios autu, you'll see that written out in written form, is tagged on to every one of the 26 verses in this psalm. Throughout all these iterations of Israel's history, the truth that's embodied in Psalm 30 and verse 5, encapsulated there, Psalm 30, verse 5a, the Septuagint 29, 6a, resounds throughout. The Greek text is much more revealing than the English text, which says something like, God's wrath abides for a moment, but his mercy endures forever. It kind of says that. The Greek text, however, should be translated like this. God's wrath is in his passion, but, his li but life is in his intention. God's passion can boil up and be gone, just like human passion can. God's wrath can be for a moment in time. But his intention is unstoppable, unrelenting, unchanging, and eternal. And we know what his great intention is from Isaiah 9.5 in the Septuagint, which hops over easily into Ephesians 1.9 and 10 to summarize everything in Christ Jesus. So the Greek text says God's wrath is in his passion. And the word there in the Greek is thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S. And it means anger that boils up and then subsides. There's a difference between passion that boils up and then subsides and the intention of God that's unstoppable and that is unrelenting and never ends until it's totally completed. 
So it says God's wrath is in his passion, but life is in his intention. His intention is always for life. Even to those who may experience for a moment his anger. Now again, his intention here is, as we have seen in his unsubsiding great intention, to sum up everything in Christ, his beloved Son, whom he has appointed heir of everything, as Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says. Now, in, also because of this, because that Psalm 30, verse 5, or LXX 29, 6b says this next, the next part of that same verse says this, Weeping may spend the night, but rejoicing, rejoicing comes early in the morning. This is a reference to the night that's passing away, as Paul put it in Romans 13, 11 and following, and to the day that comes to stay. So the idea here is that weeping may endure through this evil age, which is on the wane now and on the way out, but joy comes in the morning. In fact, joy already has come in the morning in one sense because there's a hint here of the rejoicing that came in the early morning when the women found the empty tomb of Jesus and when Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Mark 16, 2, Mark 16, 9. Now imagine that. First person he appears to is someone who was once demon-possessed, once possessed, controlled, tormented by seven demons. It should be remembered that mercy is extended precisely to those in unbelief and disobedience. Romans 11, 30 to 32 tells the story. In many ways, Romans eleven thirty two, a verse that you should never forget, is the climax of the epistle to the Romans. It certainly is a high point in Paul's argument for a universalistic gospel of grace. A significant portion of Romans itself included a debate between Paul and an opponent, like the debate between Akiba and Eleazar. One can see his opponent agreeing with Akiba's point of view that the desert generation will be exempted from the eschatological Sabbath. We can see Paul's opponent maybe agreeing with him, while Eleazar, which is another word for the term that we use, in, the name that we often see in Scripture called Lazarus, Eliezer, at least, on that point, would agree with Paul. Mercy upon all doesn't square with an everlasting exclusion of hundreds of thousands of the people of God from a future salvation. I'll say that again. Mercy upon all, Romans 11.32, which is God's intention, doesn't square with an everlasting exclusion of hundreds of thousands of the people of God from a future salvation. A lot of people like to put the accent on God's passion in which he expressed wrath, anger, or displeasure for a moment. They put that over his intention, which is eternal, unstoppable, and unsubsiding. You shouldn't do that. God's love is eternal and unsubsiding. So that God shows mercy to all means that he grants his saving mercy to all. I've put a lot of energy and time into trying to connect God's mercy with his salvation. And it's pretty simply put when we see that Romans 11.32 says he intends to show mercy to all. And in Titus 3... 4 through 5a, it says, Now when the kindness and philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. He saved us according to his mercy. He intends to show mercy to all, and the mercy is salvation or saving mercy. 
So God intends to show his saving mercy to all, to give it to all, to show it to all. So one of the most important connections in the scripture is the link between God's mercy and salvation. He will have, and indeed there is a perspective where we can say he indeed has had saving mercy on all. What perspective am I talking about? I'm talking about the perspective of the cross, the theology of the cross, the logos of the cross, the just and mysterious law of the cross. Now, the expulsion of the disobedient from the eschatological Sabbath is not a possibility since God's intention is to give mercy to the disobedient. It is not what Karl Barth would call an impossible possibility either. It's not even a possible possibility. It's a straight impossibility. Because of the intervention, listen carefully, the intervention of God at the cross and the intercession of Christ in heaven. The intervention of of the cross on earth and the intercession of Christ in heaven. In Daniel 9, we have another iteration of sorts of the history of Israel, and it's done as in Nehemiah's case in a, an identification with Israel and of Israel's sinfulness. It's kind of like a praying for forgiveness while including yourself in it. Daniel prayed for Israel, his people, and his nation. And he did so after reading Jeremiah. The best time to pray is after reading the scripture, incidentally. After reading Jeremiah about the duration of Israel's exile, which was said to be 70 years in Daniel 9-2. In Daniel's prayer, he acknowledged and in fact identified with the sinfulness of his nation. And he appealed to the Lord, asking on the basis of God's own righteousness, God's own righteousness, which we would say, in Jesus' name, we're appealing to God's own righteousness. In Daniel 9.16, he appealed to let his wrath and his passion be turned away from his city, Jerusalem. Daniel the prophet, in other words, requested grace from the throne of grace for the people of Jerusalem. And in verse 918, it says, on the basis of God's great mercies. Same phrase Paul uses in Romans 12.1. On the basis of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, etc., even as Daniel was praying. Picture Daniel, he's studying Jeremiah. He prays. The next event, an angel comes and interrupts his prayer. Even as he was praying, Gabriel, the angel, who stands in the presence of God, came to Daniel and gave that elder statesman, I like to call him that, the prophecy of the 70 weeks of years, which we call 70 times 7 years. In other words, Daniel got more than he asked. He asked about 70. He gets 70 times 7 in a prophecy. It's a prophecy that God had determined for his people. A prophecy at the heart of which was and is Jesus Christ and him crucified. For it says even in the Greek text, ton Christu. Ton Christu in the Greek text, T-O-N-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U. Ton Christu, let's make that a capital, Kai. Ton Christu, that's Christ. And it says right in the heart of that prophecy of 70 times 7, that Messiah, which is ton Christu, will be cut off. Remember what Hebrews 2.9 says? We see Jesus 
who by the grace of God, which I think better translated apart from God, experienced death for everyone. Same thing in Daniel 9.26. The Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. And this again is comparable to Hebrews 2.9. He will experience death for everyone far from God. That's what Gabriel was saying in the heart of a 70 times 7. Now where have we heard that before? When Jesus told Peter to forgive 70 times 7 times, he was actually referring to that unlimited forgiveness and final total restoration of Israel that was prophesied by Gabriel in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. When he said 70 times 7, Peter, he was talking about a total forgiveness and the restoration not only of Israel, but what's true for Israel is true for all the nations. He's talking about a total forgiveness that will be wrought and will be enacted through him being cut off and having nothing, being far from God and tasting death for everyone. That's what I mean. We can't stray very far from the cross. If you do, you're going to get all messed up in your head. You'll get all messed up. Your priorities will go off, off the rails. Your anxiety will take place of your peace, etc. We should fear God's momentary wrath. I'm telling you that. We should fear God's momentary wrath. And not sin. Maybe you can point to parts, times in your experience when you were tempted to do something that you knew was wrong. And you're standing on the verge of that temptation and ready to do it. And then your thoughts go to God's love. And then you think, well, God loves me, so he'll let this slide or he'll forgive me. And then, so that doesn't serve as much incentive. But then you think of God's wrath and you think of the reaping that you could reap from sowing to the flesh. And so you start to fear the consequences of what you're about to do, and then you start to think about all those consequences. What you're doing is you're fearing the wrath of God, and sometimes that's a pretty good motivation not to step across that red line. And so I think there's been times when I've considered things, and then I thought, well, I can't lose my salvation, but then a thought would come rushing in like a locomotive and said, yeah, but you could suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And that became a pretty good motivation. And so, when Jesus told Peter to forgive 70 times, seven times, he was alluding to the unlimited forgiveness and final total restoration of Israel that was prophesied by Gabriel in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, at the heart of which is 26, ton Christon. Now, as a crescendo of this symphony, and that's what I'm calling my argument from 76 and this one, 77, as a crescendo, perhaps some of you will remember 77, Sunset Strip. If you remember that show, you're as old as I am. And there used to be a thing called kooky, lend me your comb, but the older you get, the less need you have to have someone lend you a comb. But in any case, 77 is the increment. It goes with 76, and together they form a kind of symphonic movement of doctrine, of truth. So as a crescendo of the symphony, let's consider this. Now, a friend of mine, whom I can't see right now, but I see we are distant, his name is Emery Persinger, brought this up with regard to the last message, little knowing that this was also in my mind, this next element of the truth. And as a crescendo of this symphony, let's consider this then. In one real sense, the rebellious, bitter, and complaining generation of self 
self-indulgent wanderers in no man's land will not be admitted into God's eschatological rest. Let me say that again. In one sense, and it sounds like I'm arguing against myself here, iron sharpens iron. In one sense, and it's a very real sense, the rebellious, bitter, complaining generation, self-piteous to the max, self-indulgent, self-absorbed, self-deceived, self-justifying, wanderers in no man's land, will not be admitted into God's eschatological, eternal rest to celebrate God's wonderful and rejoicing Sabbath celebration, which goes on forever. Now that's true because they along with all of sinful humankind, will have gone through a transformation to the end that we will no longer be the people who disbelieve, who slander and malign, who engage in self-pity, who point to a president and make him the scapegoat for all of your distress and misery. A generation that does that can't be any more despicable, slimy, sleazy, and lacking in character. But you'll never see a person like that in heaven because of a transformation to the end that we... And I speak of myself too. We'll no longer be the people who engage in self-pity and self-absorption, who bitterly complain, who are unfaithful, envious, hateful, murderous, immoral, or perverse. You're not going to see one person like that in the eschatological future world. Because of a transformation that God is going to enact. In fact, if you're looking at the cross, it is a transformation that God has already enacted in Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's up to you and I to acknowledge it if we want to have a a modicum of the experience of it. Now, there's another book I want to quote just for a moment because I don't exactly have all of this in the agreement column, although I have most of it in the agreement column of my mind. Thomas Talbot's book called The Inescapable Love of God. Now, it's highly recommended, and one of the reasons why is because of the highly esteemed man named Tony Sadar, whom I also cannot see right now, but I can imagine him in my mind. He once said that it was his, the best book he ever read. Now, I think... Well, it's up there. It's a really good one. The Inescapable Love of God. The title speaks for itself, and I think there's been a couple of reprintings of it, and I do highly recommend it, with some reservations, one of them being that it seems that a lot of universalists of our time and of the ancient times in the patristic era have an idea that we're going to be transformed over the ages to come, that it's going to take maybe thousands of years to make us right for the future world, I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, I think it's instantaneous. I think that transformation, if there's any futurity in it at all, it will happen in a day in which Second or 1 Corinthians 3.13 calls it the day that will reveal the true nature of our accomplishments in this world. It's a day that is approaching right now, as Hebrews 10.25 says. When we get back to assembling ourselves together, and right now we still are around the word, when we get back to physically assembling ourselves together, it will be urgently done because we see the day approaching. The day, well, just match up Hebrews 10.25 and 1 Corinthians 3.13, and you'll see what I mean. The day is going to declare it. 
whether or not we've lived in this false self all our lives or have put on the new man, put off the old. But here's what Thomas Talbot wrote. Speaking of Paul the Apostle's view, he wrote this, quote, The death or the punishment that sin brings is as much a means of grace, on Paul's view, as the death that being crucified with Christ brings. And in both cases, death is a process whereby the old person, and please note this, or the false self is destroyed. The difference between the two kinds of death, then, is essentially a difference of perspective. From the perspective of those already crucified in Christ, the destruction of the false self is clearly a good thing. It is liberation, salvation itself. But from the perspective of those who continue to cling to the false self, I once heard a man of some fame say, criticize people in Pennsylvania for clinging to God while he himself clings to a false self and is a phony. A lot of that going around today. A lot of it going around today. And we have to be careful not to join. There are entire organizations with mottos today whose entire work is to be an accuser of the brethren. It's an antichrist work. It's an antichrist function, which shows that we are at the end of an era, an age, and possibly even a civilization. I'll continue. But from the perspective of those who continue to cling to the false self, its destruction will be a fearsome thing. It will seem like the very destruction of themselves. I'll stop right there. I'm not done with the quote. But here's where I stand. I don't think that's going to happen over the course of ages to come. I think it's going to happen in a split moment, in a second, at the appearance of Jesus Christ as the day declares whether we've been living in the false or the true self by fire. And then he goes on to say, For how else could those who cling to the false self experience God's opposition to it except as opposition to themselves? They will encounter their God as a consuming fire, and they will experience his opposition to the false self as wrath and fury. For one way or another, God will destroy the false self and destroy it forever. Forever that false self doesn't make it in to future world. Never. Thank God for that. I don't want the miserable, angry, irascible part of me, the curmudgeon in me, to ever be there. I want me in Christ, created in Christ Jesus, to be there. Manifesting the life of my Savior. Now, this alone makes the saying in Hebrews 10.31 make sense to me. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Of course it is, if you're clinging to your false self. From your perspective, and believe me when I say this, from your perspective in the false self, which is where I first encountered the Lord, you will consider it to be the greatest possible, fearful, terrifying thing. So I agree that for those of us who cling to our false selves, that day will be fearful. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen to this. If you lived all your lives with cruel hatred, self-absorbed envy, jealousy, anger, 
bitterness, slander. And you excused yourself for all of it because of how you've been wronged. If you lived all your lives in hate, the worst thing you could ever be exposed to is perfect love. Perfect love would terrify the hell out of you if you were riddled with hate and lived in hate. But if we are in this world as he is in this world and that we have been transformed into being in love, then we face the judgment with confidence. That's what 1 John 2, 1 John 4, 17 and 18 says. I almost said 1 John 2 because I was going to refer to 1 John 2, 18 in which John said there's many antichrists running all over the planet. And there are today. More now than when he was there. More now than when he wrote. As Mr. Talbot says, the destruction of the false self will be for them a good thing too, though. Despite the fact that the fire, the consuming fire, which is our God in Hebrews 12.29, confronts them in such a way, it's going to be a good thing for them. For us, for all of us. But blessed are those who, like Saul of Tarsus, have already been confronted by the living God in this life and are being changed. There's much to be said about the loss of the false self in the scriptures. Jesus spoke of losing one's life in this age and finding one's life in the age to come, which can happen in this life. You lose your life as this age defines it, as the Silicon Valley technology defines it. They say this is who you are. They say this is what you are. They say that if you're of this race, you should be ashamed. They say this is who you are, and this is what you ought to be. That's all from this evil age. And it's from the accuser of the brethren. And that's why we are to hate our life as it's defined by those kind of self-serving gurus and ideologies. So, in this life, we are changed. Blessed are you if you are. Paul spoke of being crucified with Christ and yet of living and of a livingness that went beyond that, of Christ living in me and of me living in him, in the, me living in the flesh by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Even those of us who belong to Christ and who know it, and those of us who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, as Galatians 5.24 says, may still cling to elements of our false self. And we are also prone to sin and prone to reversion into the old self. The more of these elements, however, are consigned to the cross, the more joyful will our experience be when we see God our Savior. At the cross, God has destroyed the false self that does those things. That's the point. A salient point of the gospel is that God killed the enmity. God killed the hostility, it says in Ephesians 2.16. Don't read Ephesians 4.22-25 without first reading 2.14-16. That's the root of Paul's injunctions. God killed the enmity, it says. In Ephesians 2.16, not only between Jews and Gentiles, but he killed the hostility against God by sinful humankind. He killed our hostility against God. To bring about peace through the blood of Christ's cross in Colossians 1.20, God killed the enmity, the animosity, the hostility that exists in human beings toward God and toward one another. The new age or the new world, the future world, is going to be absent hostility to God and one another. Absent it altogether. 
There are forces, political active forces in our country today that are activating hostility of one group against another so that you almost have an even split and divide with the intention of weakening this nation to be conquered by foreign powers. Powers like China that harvest organs from people on, by penalty of law who butcher Christians and plow churches under. And I won't say anything about the basketball players who genuflect to them. I wouldn't do that. Well, there's a root and a basis for the apostolic injunction to put off the old man. Our hostility against God was killed at the same time that the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles was demolished in the body of Jesus, in the body of his flesh through death, says Ephesians 2.15, make that one. This is the root, therefore, and the basis for the apostolic injunction to put off the old self, which is tantamount to putting off the lie. Why do we talk about the false self? Why did Talbot? Why am I talking about the false self? Because the old man that's put off in Ephesians 4.22 is the same as putting off the lie in Ephesians 4.25. So putting off the lie, putting off the old self, is putting off the false self, the pseudo-self. This is the root, therefore, in Christ's death, we have the root and basis for the apostolic command to put off the old self, which is tantamount to putting off the lie. That is, the false self. And to put on the new self. Now, this message is going to move into a sprint to the finish line very shortly. So I hope you pay attention because I'm going to sprint to the finish line very shortly in what will be the most important message so far, and I say that many times, but I'll say it today, so far in Hebrews. The most important message. Before we put off the old man, we know that he was crucified with Christ. And then we put on the new self, the one created according to the image of God, which is Christ, the self which manifests itself in the livingness of righteousness and holiness of the truth. Putting on the new, Ephesians 4.24, which is a self renewed according to truth, is to put on the true self. The new self is the true self. <clears throat> Fools talk about what they call my truth. Your truth, if it isn't the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ, is a lie. And you need to put off the lie. People say, my truth is this, which is the excuse to fulfill all of their self-lusts and ambitions and to hell with everybody else. My truth, they say. It's pathetic. It's filled with self-pity. It's arrogant. And it's self-destructive, not only of individuals, but of societies. You see, the false self will never gain entry into God's rest. Never. Not now. Not ever. The false self has no share in future world. Not now. Not ever. The false self doesn't go to heaven, if you like to use that religious language. Do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die, they say? What a stupid question. What a moronic question. I would say, did you know you're not going to heaven when you die? That your false self isn't going to make it? That's what I'd say. Only the new and the true self has a share in the new creation. Only the new and the true self will enter God's rest to celebrate the endless eschatological Sabbath. The Sabbath rest that still remains for the people of God, Hebrews 4.9. The rest which we labor to enter into. How do you like that oxymoron? We labor to enter rest, even now. He who loves his life, self, suke, in other words, will lose it, Jesus said. 
And he who hates his life in this cosmos will keep it for the life of the age. That's the life of the age to come. He'll begin to experience it now and have it forever. It's not self-hatred or self-loathing. And that's how people misinterpret Christianity. It isn't self-hatred or self-loathing that's recommended and even commended by Jesus. Not at all. It is rejecting the self that this world, that is this evil age, says you should be. The root of this exchange is the death of Jesus. This world says, are you black? You should be a victim. Are you white? You should be ashamed. That's the evil age defining people's lives. The root of this exchange between the false and the true self is the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. In his death, your false self died in him who became sin for us. In his resurrection, your new self rose with him who is our righteousness and holiness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Him who is our life, Colossians 3.4 he who is our very livingness now, Philippians 1.21. The exchange is experienced in what is known as a field of renewal. That's why we go to church. We don't go to church to praise and sing and sway and bounce tambourines off each other's heads. There's nothing wrong with, in fact, it's commanded to make psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to worship, to worship fervently with all of our heart, to pray, but the main reason is so that we can enter into a field of the renewal of our mind, resulting in transformation. Ephesians 4.23, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Where the Holy Spirit effects the transformation through the renewal of our mind. A false self can sing hymns. A false self can be slain in the Spirit and be stupid. Uh, the false self can claim to be pious and even look pious. But we're talking about a field of renewal where the Holy Spirit effects the transformation through the renewal of our mind by the word of God, not a tool of entertainment. The judge of our mentality and intentionality, the good word of God, Hebrews 6, 5, which is living, operational, and pierces to the soul, suke, and spirit, pneuma, in Hebrews 4, 12. With regard to Hebrews 3.11 then, as we're ready to sign off on this paragraph, but not quite yet, the false self in all of us, the false self in all of us, the self who does the things that the desert generation did, will not enter into God's everlasting rest. Thank God. What applies to the individual self applies to Israel in toto, in its totality, throughout its history. And what applies to Israel applies to all of humanity. To illustrate this, consider the many iterations of God's promise to Abraham and to his seed, a promise that in him all the nations will be blessed. Among these iterations or repetitions of that promise was Jacob's scepter prophecy. It was dramatic Jacob was sitting on his deathbed. Between his knees was his walking stick that he held like a scepter, and he leaned at the top of that staff. And he gave a prophecy that said, as he looked at that cane that he'd walked on for so many years, and as he leaned upon it, he said, the scepter will not be taken away from Judah. The scepter will not be taken from between his feet. And that's what he says in Genesis 49.10. Hebrews 11.21 thinks that this is so remarkable that he's included in the heroes of faith and that he made this blessing and prophecy by faith. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not be taken away from Judah 
or the staff from between his feet until he comes for whom it is reserved, and he will be the expectation of the nations. Now, this of this scepter prophecy, as it's called, John Henry Newman wrote this. John Henry Newman, one of the mentors of Bernard Lonergan, wrote this. Such was the categorical prophecy, literal and unequivocal in its wording, direct and simple in its scope. One man, born of the chosen tribe, Judah, was the destined minister to the whole world. And the race is rep as represented by that tribe was, listen carefully, was to lose its old self in gaining a new self in him. Its destiny was sealed upon it in its beginning. Now here's my sprint. I'm sprinting home now. I'm sprinting to the end. You'll see this in print, and I'm going to try to put it together in italics because it belongs in an emphasis in all these messages. The phenomenon that we're speaking about remains for this present evil age, however. And this is dramatically demonstrable in our own times. People will do everything they can to cling to their false selves. Many will cling to their false selves and call it my truth, which is a patent disavowal of the truth that is in Jesus in Ephesians 4.21. That's their real truth, even though they refuse to acknowledge it because of the hardness of their hearts. They will even try to destroy those who have truly forsaken their false selves. They to them are their severe enemies, their avowed enemies. They view them as threats. They are afraid of losing their life. They make a scapegoat out of someone and make that person the reason for their distress and their misery or their loss as the desert generation did with Moses, Numbers 20, verses 1 to 5. The crucifixion of the Son of God, on the other hand, the worst, the most unfortunate use of the word stauro, of the root word stauro, is found in Hebrews 6, 6, which says that it's possible for us to re-crucify the Son of God. The crucifixion of the Son of God was rooted on the human side in the desire of his crucifiers to save their own lives. To preserve their false selves. They even said it. Caiaphas even said it in John 11. It has to be that one man dies so that we'll be saved from Roman aggression. So... Nor can we make a scapegoat out of them. We can't point to them. For it is Hebrews, the book we're studying in 2020 and on into the turbulent 20s, that speaks of the culpability of re-crucifying the Son of God. And in the Greek phrase of that in Hebrews 6.6, 6, Ana stauruntas autois ton huion ton theu. Re-crucifying to ourselves, the Son of God. It's a horrible phrase, but we can be culpable of it. Recrucifying the Son of God is the eventual outcome of the desperate attempt to save one's false self, to preserve one's life as defined by this age or by some ideology that originated at a great distance from God and his word. The problem of our time is not people who cling to their God, but people who cling to their false selves. That's the ultimate idolatry. That is antichrist. And as John the old man said, even now there are many antichrists. While you're looking for the antichrist to come with your false and stupid, arrogant doctrine, John is telling you what that Antichrist is. It's everybody who preserves the false self.
against the truth of Christ. In 1 John 2.18, there are many antichrists who do not confess Jesus in 4.3 of 1 John. The apparent ascendancy of antichrists, that is, apparently in history they're ascending to a place of control, is a sign not only of the end of the age, but the end of a nation or even of a civilization. Jesus, the truth in person, was in, was and is still perceived to be the biggest threat to the false self. So he's going to be the biggest target, and so are followers of him. Indeed, Jesus is rightly perceived to be that threat. Knowing him, you want to talk about knowing him? Knowing him requires the forfeiture of your false self and mine. But the loss of our false self, also known as our life in this age, or as defined by this age, our identity as defined by this age, the loss of that false self is the gain of true freedom. It's the gain of our true self, the gain of Christ himself as our life and our livingness, our joy, our peace, our righteousness, our holiness. The self we are urged by Jesus to deny is our false self. He urges us to lose our life in this evil age. Those who listen and do not harden their hearts are usually those who are sick of themselves anyways. Sick of the false self and of trying to maintain their false identities. Those who respond in faith rather than react and reject with a hardened heart are those who are tired of their lives as defined by this evil age and by its teachers and gurus, its glittering celebrities, its accusatory authors and movements, its one-time comedians, now political pundits, its influencers on social media, its rising radical political stars, its apostate preachers and compromising clergy, its bloviating blowhards and hyperventilating hypocrites. The arrogant are strutting around on every side, says Psalm 12. And that means that the image of the false self looms large and its ideology is writ large against the landscape of our culture. In closing, listen carefully. To take up our cross does not mean that we submit to some difficulty or resign ourselves to something that causes us grief in this life. As in the slushy self-pity of a saying like, that's my cross to bear. Or on the maudlin motto, everyone has their cross to bear. To take up our cross, on the contrary, is to recognize our co-crucifixion with Christ, which means the death of our former false self. Our former false self died with the true one, with him who is the truth and who is reality. Jesus adds to the words, take up your cross, the words, and follow me. There are no authentic followers of Jesus who have not consigned their false selves to his cross, cross and lost their lives in this world. Following him, they find, I'll say it this way, following him, we find our true selves, our real identity, and we're given the life of the age to come even now as a kind of foretaste, an experience that was impossible to the former pseudo-self. And so the embitterment at Meribah, and this is why we stayed with Hebrews 3, 7 to 11 for several messages. The embitterment at Meribah, and later on at Rephidim, was instructive in the time of the psalm composer who composed Psalm 95, Septuagint 94. It served as an appropriate admonition to that generation just preceding the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It is phenomenally fitting instruction for us who find ourselves in the turbulent 20s of the 21st century and on the verge of something that could be totally catastrophic 
or you catastrophic, a good catastrophe. We ought not harden our heart and stiffen our neck when the Spirit urges us to listen to our shepherd who tells us there is no condemnation in me. You died and your life is hid with me now. When I appear a second time, you will appear with me in glory. See me now, crowned with glory and honor. It's the glory and honor with which I will clothe you. Come and find rest for your souls in me. Do you have a plan to emerge from this pandemic buff or slender? So you impress people for a second or two? Well, that would be a fair show in the flesh, all right, but that's all. Instead, let's emerge from this pandemic, and we will, in our new selves, our true selves. Let's leave the old self, the false self, crucified, dead and buried with no well wishes and no eulogies. Amen. That's all for today.